0: find new ways to become even more innovative in how we lead our people, how we operate, to how we grow our businesses, to how we serve our customers. Together, we want to share strategies and tools that can make the industry thrive long-term, not just survive.
1: Where the market currently is, for me, like these dark kitchens are the new street food, and they do really kind of enable entrepreneurs and new concepts to launch. And then if these concepts are really good and they take off, you're more likely to be in a position to accumulate a little bit of revenue that you can reinvest into a very small takeaway place and then later on when you have more money you can reinvest into a proper maybe restaurant and so on, it's a process.
0: This is Tim Vasilakis, founder and CEO at The Athenian, which serves you the award-winning gurus across the UK, made the Athenian way. In this conversation, Tim shares the purpose behind the Athenian and how they went from a street food trader to bricks and mortar and now a dark kitchen operator. We dive into the current challenges of the industry and we touch on the staffing crisis and he shares how they are reinventing their people practices to retain and attract talent. We talk about the future of the industry and here he thinks that the next 12 months is going to be really challenging especially because the unknown factor of Brexit. He shares some of his learnings during the last 18 months and what he does as a founder to survive and thrive in these uncertain times. Before you tune in, please sign up for a weekly newsletter, pack for more Maverick insights, strategies and tools, find the link in the show notes or visit hospitalitymavericks.com. This conversation starts with Tim sharing his stories of the Athenian. Enjoy. Today, we will be talking about how you actually uh, maybe go in and reconsider the whole setup of your business, even your positioning of your business uh, during a pandemic and how you actually do that with success and how you actually take uh, a product to market that you know most people love when they go on holiday, but actually make it into street food and actually create dark kitchens and also how you actually bring that into the home of people, like really good Greek food. And for that, I have one of the the experts in that, I will say, here in the UK. I have Tim from The Athenian joining us, the founder. Welcome to the show, Tim.
1: Hi, Michael. Thank you so much for having me.
0: For people out there that haven't heard about The Athenian, you're not just in London. Let's just clarify that. You are across the country. Uh, in uh, different regional cities, but I'll let you come back to that. But can you tell us a bit about your your story and uh, what, what, is the, what are your purpose is and how you ended up with running a, a restaurant business?
1: Yeah, sure. So I started the Athenian back in 2014, at the end of 2014, like November time. And uh, it was really an experiment. It wasn't, you know, I didn't really know where it would head um, so I started with setting up a gazebo stall in Sunday market in Haringey at the time, um, just literally trialing even like the positioning of the tables uh, to the menu, having only two items and, um, and just seeing how people would react to it. And even though that market was very quiet, um, it wasn't, um, there's a lot of market in London. There's a lot of markets in London that are very popular and that was definitely not one of them. Um, In order to get to one of the more popular ones, um, you need to have a running concept and you need to have a reasonable social media presence. You know, you need to have done a lot of the preliminary work. So in the beginning, usually you're more likely to get into one of the smaller markets, but that also means, you know, less sales. But I didn't mind that. I thought, you know, we're going to go to that market give it a try and see how it goes. You know, find our feet as well, because when you have customers for the first time, you wanna make sure that every order is attended and so on. But we did reasonably well there. Um, We had about 40 customers on the first day, which was a lot for that market. It was, um, from what I remember, I think it was like the maximum the market had, like one of the best sales in the market had ever done. Um, So I thought that was a good indicator if you're in a quiet market and pretty much almost all of the customers come and try the food. Um, So that kind of was a little nice boost. And then shortly after that, I had an interview with Tower Hamlets Council, uh, who managed Brick Lane Market, which is one of the, at least at the time in 2014, uh, was one of the most popular in London. And um, um, I had an interview with them and they loved the concept. So I started going there on Sunday. So I moved from Haringey Market into Uh, brick lane sunday market and um, from there it was just on fire because consistently sold out sunday after sunday i was not bringing enough food and uh, that really helped kind of like accelerate the growth and then the once a week market became twice a week fridays and sundays and then thursdays fridays and sundays and then it became a seven-day operation very quickly Um, however you know in the it, it was quite obvious that street food is a very difficult environment to operate in uh, purely because you you don't have access to very basic necessities like electricity and running water so you really rely on bringing your own gas and bringing your own water which has a limit it's also very kind of like exposed to the elements of the weather especially in in the winter months so i knew it from the from of my mind that you know i had an expiration date there's only so long you can kind of like do this kind of project and you know for many people you know i see some of the traders that I used to trade next trade next to, they're still they're still going, and for for a lot of people that's absolutely fine. It's just when I saw the success of the Athenian from the early days, I thought you know this has legs, and we need to progress, and um, eventually get into a place where we have electricity and running water <laughs> without having to bring it with us, um, which might seem funny, but. Um, yeah so fast forward you know like those first two years we did everything from christmas markets to summer festivals uh to you name it um and that really helped kind of like um accelerate the growth of the business business everything that we made we reinvested and um then around 2016 we got our first uh, shipping container in elephant and castle in a place called that works that place is not there anymore it's been kind of like demolished um it was like one of those startupy kind of places where you could have like food, offices, a mix of the two, and they would just put like temporary shipping containers. Um, and then shortly after that, we had um, a unit in Boxpack Shortage, which we still maintain to this day. We're still in Boxpack Shortage, which again, you know, for people that are familiar with the, these concepts in London, it's again, like supposed to kind of like encourage um, businesses, um, independent small businesses to start up. And then the rest is history. We did a transition over a year and a half where we moved from street food into um, permanent locations. And then shortly before COVID, coincidentally, um, we decided to take a chance on our very first uh, dark kitchen. And for people listening to us that might not be familiar with the term, Over the US it's called the ghost kitchen. It depends, like in some other markets it's called something else. Essentially, it's a delivery kitchen. It's a commercial kitchen where um, somebody rents and they use it to sell food online only on a platform like Deliveroo or Uber Eats. Um, And um, when the customer sees the restaurant on the platform, um, it looks like a normal listing. It looks like a normal restaurant. The The customer doesn't know that it's a delivery only kitchen. So that's kind of like how I would describe how that kitchens work, and um, yeah, coincidentally, just before I think it must have been like a couple of months before COVID hit, we opened our first kitchen with Deliveroo in uh, Battersea, in London, and um, it was it was interesting. It was really interesting because in the end we saw um, that actually the sales that were coming in were not so dissimilar to a normal kind of like traditional bricks and mortar. Um, and for, for our cases, we're doing like fast casual food. So um, we're not like a sit down three course meal kind of experience restaurants. So always you know, bear that in mind. We are, our, our concept was always kind of like very well catered for delivery, kind of like the, the type of cuisine and food that we do. Um, so when we saw kind of like the numbers coming in and the, the sales, we thought, hmm, actually this has legs. You know, this is not just an experimental project. Um, And um, once the first lockdown was announced, it was basically a no brainer, you know, Deliveroo had a huge pipeline of uh, kitchens for us that we could take over. Um, And we of course said yes. And um, in a very short time, we opened quite a large number of uh, delivery kitchens. And um, in a sort of post pandemic world, that's kind of become a big chunk of how the business operates now. Um at this date we have 13 sites open and only 4 of them are bricks and mortar the, for the the rest the the remaining 9 are all dark kitchens and we have plans to open um at least another 6 by mid 2020 and probably even more by the end of 2022 so uh yeah that's kind of like a brief overview of where it started and where we are currently
0: what was the, you know, where was the idea, the purpose for, you know, going to make the, create the Athenian? What was that you were missing? It was often that the founder was missing something when they go out and build it or can see an opportunity.
1: Definitely. So before I started it out, I, I was um, a customer of those kind of like street food markets. So I would very regularly, especially in the weekends or even like during the week, during lunch, I would go to these markets to get food. And I always found them fascinating how for uh, a small amount of cash, you could uh, try cuisines from all over the world that were just side by side to each other. And it was just a completely different experience to going to a restaurant. Um, And there was always um, no representation of Greek cuisine, specifically the type of food that we do, gyros and souvlaki, at the Athenian. Um, And um, it kind of occurred to me that you know like if euro sense of life is number one in greece there's a reason uh it's because people love it it's because it combines a lot of things that people want to have when they eat out and i thought you know the fact that it doesn't yet exist in the uk or at least didn't exist in 2014 when i started the representation the was very small at the time it was very 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 difficult to find souvlaki and gyros and the chances were if you were to find it it wasn't souvlaki or gyros it was something vaguely similar it wasn't really how i would have it if i was to go back home to athens um and um, also at the time you know greece was in the news a lot with the crisis and a lot of negativity about the country and its capabilities to pull its economy together and um, a lot of negative um, kind of like narrative about the greek people and that really kind of made me really stubborn to prove the opposite um, and also i was just really just fed up and tired of going out to eat greek food and being served the same stereotype the same exaggeration the same references to ancient greece the blue and the white the hercules font the opa just of all of the things that you know, they have been fading away from Greek culture for the past uh, few decades. So it's not even like a new thing. And me as a, a person, like I'm um, uh, being born and brought up in Athens specifically, like I was never really exposed to any of those stereotypes. And especially when you go out to eat in Greece, there is none of that exaggeration of, you know, like the references to ancient Greece, like it has nothing to do with going out and having a meal, having references to ancient history and temples and things like that. And I thought, why don't we just take all of that away and just make a place where it just happens to have Greek food and it just kind of translates to everyone, whether you're from the US, the UK, um, from Thailand, from Japan, from Australia, you know, from uh, Dubai, and you just get it. You know, you don't have to necessarily um associate or have a narrative of those kind of like exaggerations of really outdated um and inaccurate i would argue um borderline um racist stereotypes actually um so yeah and i thought let's do something simple minimal um and um something that would be kind of like young and trendy at the same time and a little bit hip you know something that you know um it wouldn't kind of like alienate people so these are kind of like the main reasons
0: yeah what about uh what what do you say, would you say then you know you say that when you started out the the offering of uh, athenian food or uh... Greek food was not explosive in the way, and as you say, it's, it's a bit different now. There's some some more players in the market, um, but what is the what, why are you different? What is it that the Athenian really do well?
1: Um, I think it's the simplic- simplicity of our menu. You know, from the beginning, um, we said we're gonna do gyros, and that's basically it. You know, we have a couple of sides and a lot of variations of that dish. Um, but um, at the end of the day, that's, that's still, to this day, that's still what we do. Um, we don't try to put moussaka on the menu or other Greek dishes that you would no way find in, in a souvlaki place if you visited Greece. You know, there's a ta- in Greece, there's like two different types of places, there's a taverna where they do kind of like, um, it's basically like an overview of the whole cuisine that you can go and experience and have like more kind of, kind of home-cooked dish dishes like moussaka or pasticcio which is like a pasta dish or like meat um, or you can go to a fish taverna which specializes in seafood and then there's like souvlaki places that literally just do souvlaki and maybe they will have a couple of other like salad dishes and side dishes but they don't divert too much from the core product which is the souvlaki however when you leave greece and you go abroad and not just in the uk just pretty much everywhere uh, you would find souvlaki on the menu and then you would see moussaka and you would see pastizio and you would see other things that, I mean, fair enough, if that's people, what people want to do. But in my view, um, if you really want to maintain quality and standards, the moment you start to introduce a million things on the menu, um, the likelihood of getting it right diminishes. Um, so if you just keep, keep the menu simple, then it, it just means that you do one thing and you do it well.
0: Yeah, I love that because I have a a little note here as you will see here if you could see the screen for the for the listeners it says do one thing well. <laughs> and I'm a, a big advocate of that. And I, when I when I prepared for this conversation looked at the menu, I was already thinking about the Mediterranean diet, you know, like the way your menu is positioned because there's also a, quite a lot of in, I don't know if it's been thought about constantly but indirectly in the the Greek uh uh diet there's a lot of you know great plant-based food as well i know a, the meat is always connected to greek food but again there's always more greens than there's meat that's the opposite of the western diet i think
1: yeah definitely i i have to say like in continental greece uh where the climate tends to be especially in the winter heavier and colder you see that the, ty- the diet is very reliant on meats especially in their countryside Um, and the small towns however you know if you visit the islands and especially in the summer there's a lot of um, uh, vegetables and um, uh, fish um, seafood um, on the menu and there's a a big variety of like pulse pulses um, like lentils beans um, and then vegetables like aubergines courgettes and so on so there are there are two kind of like cuisines in Greece and I am because I've since I left Greece when I was 18 years old, and I, I moved to the UK and I started to travel the world, you know, every time I would go back to Greece, it would be primarily to the islands and Athens. And I think that gives you kind of maybe kind of a, a, a slightly different kind of like access to the cuisine. So um, I think, you know, if you go to the countryside, you see that there is still like a lot of reliance on meat dishes and uh, I think it's probably related to the way that uh, the climate is different in continental Greece versus to the islands the islands always have a milder climate and uh, a, a lot of these islands don't have big animals to farm they only have goats so they rely on, a lot on like uh, goat's cheese olive oil and things like that and then growing their own vegetables so I think it's it's all to do with like locally what can be sourced as well like how the diet um is um but the menu of the athenian you know we we try to stay true to what a, a true authentic athenian greek heroes would be like so pork and chicken for instance but then we take it a step further and we bring it to 2022 and we say what do people want to eat in 2022 london and we see a big trend with uh, plant-based uh proteins and alternatives and even though to this day, finding a vegan gyros in Greece is extremely rare, if at all possible. I've I've not seen it in my most recent visit in Athens, going to eat souvlaki out. It's not something that you would find on the menu. They do try to do like different alternatives with mushrooms and stuff like that, but you wouldn't see like an, an alternative to meat that would taste like meat. Um, so it's still kind of like not really a thing in Greece, but that doesn't stop us from, Us trying to innovate and bring something new to the table and try to evolve uh, Greek cuisine um, along the way, which I think is extremely important.
0: You talked a bit about in the the beginning of the conversation about your roots coming from street foods. And, uh, you know, there was a time where a lot that was the way to do it, you know, because it was too expensive to start in Brits and Mortar and start with street food, experiment build up the awareness, build the brand uh, and so on. Do you th- still think if there's anyone sitting out there with like a food idea, they want to go and try out, do you still think that's the, one of the most viable ways in the, in the current environment as well?
1: Um, things have changed a lot in a short time. So even though it's only been seven years since the Athenians started, the, the marketplace is completely different. I almost feel like we've changed century in those seven years. Like that's how radically things have changed um so what used to be a really nice way for someone to start up a food business now i don't know if i would personally have the courage to go and do exactly what i did seven years ago because it's just a different world that we're living in just in general like covid has changed so many things that we've gotten used to over the past two years and we probably don't even realize how much has changed because we've gotten used to the change um so street food markets are not gonna disappear and go away. Definitely not. And once, you know, the pandemic is behind us, people will be out um, consistently and throughout the year again to these street food markets. And of course, it will continue to be attractive for someone to start a concept. It's just, I, I feel that in the last two years, it's been very, very difficult, especially in the beginning of the pandemic, like to maintain kind of all of that distance in a tiny stall if there's like two, two or three people working, it's impossible. You're just next to each other um, and people just staying at home and not going out as much, ordering online, you know, all of these things that would have had an impact. And I think um, it, it must have been very difficult for street food traders in the last couple of years to make a living um, and, um, and develop their concepts further. I think it must have been incredibly difficult and frustrating that's why I think you know when we see the, dark, the rise of dark kitchens, um, for me, this is the new street food, kind of like the new age of street food. I put street food in inverted commas here because it's not really street food, but I see a lot of parallels between when I started doing the street food and now these dark kitchens, um, in the sense that it's very low risk, it's very low cost, so you don't have to invest an absolute fortune. Like if you open a restaurant, you literally need to be rich. Like, you need to be very rich to have made a lot of money in your life and to just have it sitting in the bank or get a massive bank loan, which a bank is not likely to give just like that without guarantees or um, anything like that. Um, So it, it just makes it less likely for someone with a really good idea that just doesn't have that capital, which is, you know, the vast majority of the population nowadays is in that situation. So it's basically impossible to start a restaurant if you're just a startup company. You would no way have the capital to do it. It's just that expensive. But with the dark kitchens, the cost is basically the cost of your equipment. And if you are exclusive with a platform like Deliveroo, they pay for that. So they pay for all of your equipment. So that reduces the cost even further. But obviously to be be exclusive with Deliveroo, you need to be an existing brand to have a running history um and to be attractive to them to want you to be exclusive with them they won't just offer exclusivity to anyone that just starts you know um um, a brand right now you know you need to really establish yourself and prove that you have a really good concept that people want to buy on the platform so i think you know where the market currently is for me like these dark kitchens are the new street food and they do really kind of enable entrepreneurs and new concepts to launch and then if these concepts are really good then they take off you're more likely to be in a position to accumulate a little bit of revenue that you can reinvest into a very small takeaway place and then later on when you have more money you can reinvest into a proper maybe restaurant and so on it's a process
0: yeah it is interesting what you're saying is also is about the experiment and actually knowing what works and doesn't work you started talking about that in the beginning of the communication what what does people like about your menu your brand and how do you bring it all together because that's that's a journey and i know you've been on that with the athenian how has uh, all that come together with the the pandemic as well because you changed a lot within your business over the pandemic like anyone else but like it it's it's one thing was you said like the dark kitchen really took off and it seems like that's the model going forward does that mean your growth plans you're not looking at bricks and mortar is that not a way of approaching growth for the athenian or are you still open for that
1: so um again it's uh, like i'll give you an example so towards like summer last year end of summer last year to like beginning of winter and to the run-up to christmas we were actually reviewing bricks, a couple of bricks and mortar locations and um, we have put an active offer in one however like after the omicron variant and you know the order f- like for people to work from home and just seeing that kind of like over-the-counter revenue disappear overnight in the four bricks and mortar locations that we have it does make me very very nervous whereas you know the the dark kitchens that we have um the revenue is just really stable um throughout the year it doesn't have it is just not really affected by these external conditions like a new variant changing people's behavior because it it just seems like that the online demand one way or another levels itself out um if people are going more out although there's been a lot of articles recently saying that you know like um post kind of like lockdown habits persist and like people ordering online like the fact that you know we have been out of lockdown for a while like it seems At least in the short to medium term, it seems that those habits haven't changed as dramatically as people expected. Um, That's, again, to lead on from the point I was making earlier that we don't even realize how much we've changed in this two year process of the pandemic. um, And how much our changes, our our, um, habits have changed in that process. So I will be cautious, like we will be cautious as a business in the next 12 months and just monitor um because guaranteed you know like spring summer will be amazing everyone will be out and about but i think again you know is there going to be more ascent uncertainty when you know it gets cold and we're all more stuck indoors and you know that again makes it more likely for spread of another variant or whatever it might be to come out and then get another booster shot i don't know and nobody has a crystal ball so i think the sensible thing to do for now is just to be a little bit cautious and um just wait to see how the market is going to to change at the end of the day it's the market that's going to dictate our business decisions
0: yeah yeah so you're cautious about growth but you still see opportunities I can say what about there's like one factor I can see that you know even people I talk with that had the opportunity to expand couldn't because of this staffing crisis that's going on and it's it's not gonna go away any day soon. It feels like it feels like a bit chronic in a way in the moment, and everything changes, and that's how it is in life. But how has this impacted you guys, and uh, how are you trying to to overcome
1: it? So we have we have been uh, affected by it, not as much as some of the stories that I hear out there, um, because we have been extremely kind of like proactive about not being in a situation where we just don't have staff and we just don't open. Um, but it's definitely very, very noticeable at across all levels, from like entry level jobs up to like really senior jobs. There's just a general shortage of candidates, and um, as a result, um, candidates are much more picky in a situation like that, and they're very selective about where they will go next. and um, And it makes sense. Why should people work uh, for a company that? Uh, doesn't offer good benefits and maybe doesn't have a good reputation overall. So I think, you know, brand having a really strong brand and a uh, really good work ethic is key and um, just a good reputation overall is extremely important. Um, But I think as an industry, we're just going to suffer for now uh, until the government acknowledges the fact that the hospitality industry is really heavily affected by the labor shortages and they changed the rules for allowing to bring people from other countries to do these, um, to work in uh, in this industry. Um, And as it currently sits with the visas being at 30,000 pounds minimum to bring someone in. um, And even though there are jobs at that rate in hospitality, um, not all jobs are at that rate. And if all jobs were at that rate, it would basically make the UK it would turn the uk into switzerland overnight in terms of like how much people pay for food and even though switzerland is a very successful you know financial model as a country it's also tiny and i don't know whether that would be easy to replicate in a 70 million population with huge inequalities kind of um financial system so it's just it's a little bit difficult at the moment i'm hoping that eventually the government will acknowledge the issue and they will bring down the threshold of the thirty thousand pounds to acknowledge to say actually you know what is the average salary on hospitality or you know if this is a way to bring salaries up naturally through the market that's fine you know because i you know i do understand that hospitality has the reputation of not being the most well-paid industry but it's also in correlation to what people are willing to pay when they go out to eat and um, when prices are going up left right and center you know like supermarkets electricity bills everything's going up that just reduces the budget that people have available when they go out to eat because it's not um it's not like a basic necessity eating out people will eventually just have less to spend and that will affect everyone and i think that could have like a knock-on effect so the current situation i'm diverting a little bit from maybe the original question, but it just leads me to the point that the, the current kind of like situation is definitely not sustainable. And um, I wouldn't be surprised in the next 12 months if we see um, a lot of businesses just closing down and not being able to cope. A lot of businesses have already increased prices. We've been trying to resist that, but there's only so much, like there's only so long that we can resist it for when everybody around us, all of our suppliers have increased the prices, everything has gone up um so that eventually will have to be passed on to the customer unfortunately um so it will just be an interesting year i think the next year um also kind of wanted to add in there that the uk is generally going through a very big transition now and it might not be so obvious because a lot of that transition is being masked behind covid and a lot of the conversations that would have been had otherwise the debate has like COVID has completely taken over the debate now and um i think it's it's blurred kind of like the horizon and people are not seeing very clearly of where this transition is kind of heading and um and it's just the way it is unfortunately you know everyone will have to adapt to that transition um but it will be interesting to see what comes after it like what the country turns into in the coming years because there is a clear transition since 2016 since the referendum vote to leave the eu and um yeah it will be interesting to see how the country uh, adapts into the this new chapter
0: yeah i think you're spot on there tim because we really don't know and it's just said it's been blurred a bit behind the whole covid situation uh, because yeah it's two big things in itself you know a transition from a, a membership that has so many Connection to trade deals, the uh, the cost of uh, energy, and and so on. So it's going to be really interesting to see where, where that land. Because of course, uh, hospitality is going to stand first in a in a potential if it goes the wrong way as well. Because that's people' dispensable income they spend there. If we go back to uh, talking about the staffing cry, just want to shortly touch on that again. So, is there any like specific thing you can say you are doing right now and you're working on to be that attractive employer you're talking about?
1: So we've just launched an employee loyalty scheme, like a five-year plan uh, to, with, with the aim to build up loyalty in our industry. We know that our industry has one of the highest rates of turnover of staff. Um, so we launched a comprehensive kind of like five-year package. So the longer somebody stays with us, the higher the reward. And the highest and the, the top of that reward um, is, is kind of like gradually increasing the benefits and holiday with the the fifth year being like a, a a full paid sabbatical four week paid sabbatical which is very unusual in in that kind of industry um, and that's on top of your holiday allowance so essentially it's basically two two months paid leave um, so that's one of the things that we're trying to do uh, we recently started to work closely with a recruitment agency to help us with our recruitment needs where they go and headhunt people that might not be available otherwise uh, unfortunately, the downside of that is recruitment hiring costs, because an agency will take a percentage of the person's salary. Um, but given where things are at the moment, it's maybe necessary. I would argue, in certain positions, um, and in c- certain areas that we trade, it's just almost impossible to find stuff. Like in uh, in, in some parts of the UK, um, and the the is like you know like the point that i made earlier about us being proactive and not just waiting around to see what happens like having the agency to help us headhunt people um and then constantly reviewing the package that we're offering and comparing it to competitors to make sure that we're a step ahead of everyone else so that if someone was considering a job in this industry you know we would be one of their first choices out there but um you know it's a work in progress and it's constantly you have to monitor it constantly because these things change like every six months um so it's a it's a tough one
0: what about uh you already touched a bit about where you see the industry but where do you think we are if you had a crystal ball tim where where do you think the industry is in 18 months time what is a how how would you describe what's going on
1: I think you know the the analogy that I made to Switzerland earlier is probably not likely to happen uh, with the UK. Um, I think what's more likely to happen is this kind of like not so sustainable uh, just explosion of costs for all of the businesses, not just hospitality, but it's just hospitality has such high overheads that is just um, disproportionately affected but if you compare it to like a technology company that doesn't have a physical product and therefore the only overheads are office costs and staff. um, Hospitality is not like that. You have to pay rent, you have to pay staff, you have to pay uh, holidays, you have to pay so many things, packaging, the food itself, you know, the the raw materials, the supplies and so on. Um, And if you're working with these platforms, you know, like online delivery, they get a really high commission. So let's not forget that. That's also an added cost. Um, so, I think uh, what is probably likely to happen is, like I was saying before, you know, not everyone is going to be able to get through this period, um, and eventually, some businesses will will have to close. And I think that will, in inverted commas, correct the market. Even though I don't like to use that term because businesses closing down is not correcting the market; it's people going out of work and people becoming, you know, poor and not having any stability, which is really bad overall for the economy. Um, but that is maybe what's likely to happen over the next um, eighteen months, and especially after two years of COVID. And you know, like the UK government has been very generous in in its uh, uh, furlough scheme in comparison to other governments in Europe, but that came to an end and they reintroduced it, it will eventually just come to a permanent end, that kind of like a government supports and, you know, the government will want its money back eventually, you know, like VAT is scheduled to go back up to 21%. Um, we don't know what other taxes might be introduced uh, because two years of free money for everyone is, is, is good because it didn't, you know, let the, the whole economy collapse. But eventually the government will want to get the money back and they will probably have to find some pretty tough ways to get that money back and that will leave very, very uh, tight space for businesses to make a profit, especially in hospitality where the space is already very tight as, as things are at the moment.
0: Yeah, I think uh, yeah, unfortunately you're right because uh, there's no free money, there's no free lunch, as they say as well in in life. To um, so, to move a bit on from uh, the Athenian and uh, and and the uh, and the industry, I also wanted to hear a bit more about you. You know, uh, because you've been on a journey as an entrepreneur, starting back in 2014 to to now seven years later. On that journey is there like some people or maybe even before that has been very significant to you it has really had an impact on you the way you you think the way you are and really pushed you in the right direction
1: yeah definitely i think um you know my mom's cooking is definitely one of them Uh, just like my the way that my mom cooks that's definitely has had an impact on me and my cooking and the things that i like to eat and so on and i think um also my partner in life uh, who I've been with for like a decade now. Um, He was the one that really like, really helped the Athenian kind of like set off in the sense that he was there on that Sunday, in the first Sunday in the market uh, to help with the van, to put out the tables and the gazebo, stay in the freezing cold, even though he had a full-time job Monday to Friday, really demanding and stressful. And um, I really do think sometimes if it wasn't for him, maybe the Athenian would never have had have had existed um so i i really owe him a lot and like even in the early years like the first three years even though you know he wasn't coming to the market um after a few months uh on sundays anymore he always like had an influence and um, ideas on social media on how to make the business better on design he has a really good eye for design so it's always i always go to him when like anything related to design branding interior you know like anything you know to to see if he likes it is usually a good sign that we made a good choice so it's it's kind of like this background figure that nobody sees at the athenian but has actually had a huge influence
0: yeah that's, that's really that's really interesting There, you you touch on uh, people that's maybe not even within the industry but likely people actually are they're there in and uh, in better good as it is in business it's not always easy what about um during the last 18 months I've talked with a lot of people has like you really reflected and had some learnings what have you and we all had some learnings and maybe some of us have adapted new habits some of us maybe have done nothing but have you had any like significant learning and change in the way you you do things or look at things the last uh, 18 months or 2 years this is almost now
1: I think you know what a lot of people have said in the last few years just don't take anything for granted things we used to take for granted now are like a a rarity almost you know they have been for periods or for long periods of time Um, and then be always on your toes and ready to adapt because it's clear that we we live during times with um, a very high pace of change and it's kind of like sink or swim unfortunately it's uh, it's really quite brutal and um, harsh how the world is changing at such a, a fast pace but I really feel like you know with business, especially, you really have to be on your toes and monitor the market and like listen to the market and just adapt as soon as you can see the change. Do it if possible, even before the change actually happens, if you can see it coming.
0: And that's quite interesting what you're saying there, because it's almost like what you have to become better at. Uh, I've heard others say that you almost have to be better at predicting what's coming ahead with the signals you see. So your job as the founder is really to be in that vision you know, that ahead of the business all the time and looking at both the market, but also what the business needs to follow that.
1: Yeah, I think you have as an entrepreneur and a a founder of a business, you really have to develop the ability to read the market and anyone failing to do so, they will realize that they will be in trouble very, very quickly. And it's not easy to read the market. The market is a complex place, it's very diverse Um, and it's very heavily influenced by uh, external factors that nobody has control over. Um however you know I do agree that it's there's all always signs, early warning signs. And if you really carefully pay attention to those signs, you are in a better position to prepare for what might be coming later on. And um just to kind of like you know lift lift spirits up a bit, I think you know, change is is a good thing, you know. I think if we just stay the same and just never change, like things just become really um just like like water that doesn't renew itself you know it eventually just stops breathing kind of you know like it's it's really vital we have to we have to be changing you know as part of 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 everyone just becoming better in whatever they do and um, developing and evolving
0: yeah and i I think that's also you know I, i loved you also you said that you know they don't take anything for granted um like, don't say, take for granted, you can just go and see your family. That's one of the things I've I've learned as well, because my family, most of it is back in Denmark. And even that is only one and a half hour away from here, one hour and 45. It's not been, you know, I've seen them a bit more in 2021 than I did in the two years before that, almost. like And uh, it's just, you don't take those things for granted. Do it while you can as well. That's one of the things I've learned. So I really love that as well. Uh, i don't know if you give a a book away to people i love to ask this question because it says a lot sometimes that i don't know if you have like a favorite book you give to people or you have something else you give them for that sake and and why and why that
1: yeah i think if we're on the topic of books um i think i would definitely give uh, trevor noah's born a crime um, which is uh, stories from his childhoods born in south africa and being the child of, um, a, a two, two of a white father and a black mother and how that during apartheid that was illegal and he just it was just not allowed you were not allowed to have a child be like a mixed race child and how that impacted his childhood and um, you know he's a comedian so he presents everything through the spectrum of comedy and making everything comical, but it's a really interesting story. And uh, I think it's really kind of like empowering, like for anyone that will read it to, to, to even think that something like that would even be possible, but that's actually in, in recent human history. It's not even like that long ago. Uh, Trevor is still very young. You know, he's not um, like ve- too mature for his, uh, for, um... <laughs> sorry, I just completely lost it. There. I'm just very careful with choosing my words so maybe you can cut that out uh yeah so i think that's uh that's definitely a book that i would recommend
0: yeah um and, and it's an interesting book because it's a bit of a different angle on uh, a book recommendation it's more a book about life and also uh, challenges like huge challenges that you're maybe not always in control in, in an environment you're in i love that um uh You run a business uh, and you said the last two years, you almost said, we almost got used to it at some point. Uh, And we all know how tough it is and hard it is. But how do you as the founder show up pro every day? Because you need to bring the energy. People look up at you, even if it's uh, the customers or the the employees or any other stakeholders would look at you. And it's so important to show up in the right way. How do you do it?
1: It's a good question. I think when you're, like I was saying before, it's really, it really is sink or swim. So I guess you just keep on swimming. You know, you don't really have a choice. Um, especially like you have to be as if you are the founder of a business, you really have to be the one that keeps a straight face and pulls everyone through even in the grimmest of times. Um, and again, it's like, you just don't have a choice. You have to like, the, the, there is no other way of doing it. Um, I think when you're, left with no choice you just do what you got to do there's no other way
0: um and it's really interesting you say that like the uh, conditions almost frame you what you need to do and i guess it's also that you know your vision is bigger than the pandemic the, the pandemic shouldn't be determining your vision in a way and you you hang on to that and you keep on pulling people through i i love that kind of view on it as well
1: definitely and i think that um if there's like something positive to take away from the pandemic, I think, you know, like life at the end of the day will throw anything at you and you just have to be prepared. Like this time, you know, it was a collective trauma that we all experienced and it was a pandemic, but life has always been that way. Like life, you can wake up one morning and think that everything is in order and everything is amazing. And then before you know it, something has happened and uh, like your, your whole life is completely derailed and you have to be prepared. Um, and you, you have to develop the ability to be able to deal with all of these kind of like surprises um, in the best way that you can and have the mental capacity to do so, which is very difficult. But, you know, ultimately, you will be the one that benefits from it if you have developed that, ab- that ability.
0: Just a quick uh, tail-on question. So how do you actually work on your mental capability? Because that's a really interesting because I totally agree with you. It's about how you create that extra space, you know? that extra you know room when things happen
1: yeah i think for me because um uh, i'm i'm a very kind of like fiery person and i definitely don't like n- nasty surprises in life but uh, i am trying to get better at it that kind of like navigating through that and um, so, sort of like self-improve um i think having developing the ability to be self-aware is the first step to self-improvement knowing what um, you're really good at, but also what you might not be so good is extremely important because acknowledging it is the first step to trying to fix it. And um, recently, I'm looking more into kind of like mindfulness and meditation and trying to like do it like guided because doing it on your own in the beginning is extremely difficult. So only like getting started on that and um, just using things that are free out there. You know, there's a lot of things on Spotify. There's a lot of things on YouTube. You know, if you really want to self-improve you don't necessarily have to like in, invest any money just just some of your quality time into things that could enable you and there's we're lacking that way because we live in a time that we just have so much um information availability um which is a double-edged sword because it really comes down to what we choose to do with it we can spend 10 hours um in front of a screen. Um, consuming our time on things that will not make us better or we can spend, you know, an hour a day on things that maybe will have a little, you know, impact on us and try to make us better. Um, So that's definitely something I would recommend to um, our listeners today to kind of like explore that avenue of um, meditation, mindfulness and just giving themselves quality time. I think time is... I would even call it like a commodity in that sense that time is extremely precious. And we don't realize when you spend maybe three, four hours on Netflix or on YouTube watching things that of course we have to like unwind and relax and you can't just be meditating five hours a day. That wouldn't work. But unless maybe you were a monk and you were doing it for a specific reason during a, a certain period of your life. But um yeah i really think that we really need to be a little bit more conscious about where we put our time we always no matter how busy we are we do have time in our hands that we could invest to make it quality time and this is something that i'm i'm slowly slowly starting to learn um the difference between quality time and anything else that's not quality time
0: i love that and it's also where you know when you have that time where you put your energy i really love that uh, reflection because i think you know most business owners have those, you know, challenges with with time. And actually, but as you say, you need to make a choice. You need to, to, there's moments where you can, if it's just 15 minutes every day, it will be 15 minutes every day over a year will be very impactful and compounded in itself. Then I will give you like the, the last opportunity to give you, now, like your top three advice to, um, to leaders out there. What would your advice be, Tim?
1: I think is to think outside of the box and really use their imagination when it comes to like coming up with a concept. Um, And I know that you do hear that a lot, like, oh, think outside the box. What does it actually mean? It actually All it means is just don't do what everybody else does. If there's a lot of people doing something, it means it's a saturated product or market. So try to do something that hasn't been done and always start from a niche that you can then maybe later on, if it matures, make it more mainstream. Um, starting with a niche is always a good way to start because you, you will get um, much more visibility if you start from a, like a smaller demographic of people that might be interested in one thing that you're planning to do. Uh, be adaptable. I think anyone who's resisting change is a recipe for disaster and is not going to uh, be able to pull through the, the changes that are heading our way.
0: I loved what you said about you know doing niche things, and I I, I had somebody give me an advice it. It was, Michael, you need to do things that doesn't scale first to really find out how they work, and so then you find a way to scale it if it's really you know a good niche, and then. Something that people want. So I really, really like that advice because I think that's a good way of starting many, many things. If it's a business or it's an initiative with inside an organization, you almost need to think about the perfect model and then find out how you scale it afterward instead of thinking about how do I scale it in the first kind of point of view. That's always a way to commercialize things if people really want them. So um, where can people find you, Tim, uh, online? Is there any place they can go and connect with you if they want to ask you more or if they want to check out the Athenian?
1: Uh, yes, so we're on Instagram. We're at the Athenian UK and then at the Athenian UK PB for plant-based. We have a plant-based account as well for our plant-based Athenian brand. And um, me personally, I don't have social media. Uh, many years now, but I do have LinkedIn, so it's just Tim Vasilakis on LinkedIn for anyone that may be uh, you know, interested in connecting that way. And uh, then we have our website, the TikTok, uh, the Athenian UK, and so on.
0: Great, great, Tim. Thank you so much for, for coming to the, the show and sharing your experiences, how you see things, and also how you are managing yourself and getting yourself in a better place as a, a leader and a founder of a business.
1: Thank you. It's been great talking to you. Thank you for your time today and I hope your listeners enjoyed our chat.
0: Thank you so much, Tim, for sharing your journey and how you and the team are navigating the storms right now. I will recommend you to ask yourself, what can I do to improve our retention and attraction of talents going forward? To get further inspiration on how to improve your business also tune in to episode number 126 with Simon Mitchell, CEO of Curb Food, on nurturing the future food businesses. If you enjoyed today's conversation, please share, rate, review or subscribe to one of our channels. A big thank you to Simply for supporting us, bringing great insights, strategies and tools to help the industry thrive, not just survive. Check them out at BizSimply.com or on their social at BizSimply or BizSimplyHQ. You can also email them directly on advice at besimply.com. A big thank you to Fina Charlson, who's the show producer and editor from the Podcast Collective. Tune in next time for another interview. And in the meantime, find out more about us and subscribe to the newsletter and download free leadership tools at hospitalitymavericks.com. And don't worry if you didn't get all of this. There will be links in the show notes. I'm Michael Tingser and you've been listening to the Hospitality Mavericks podcast show. Be Maverick.